Good evening. The next lecture in this series is on Monday, the 6th of October, and will be given by Archibald Hanna, formerly curator of Western Americana, retired curator of Western Americana at Yale University, talking about book acquisitions in the 50s and 60s uh, in his collection at Yale. Our situation tonight is unusual in that not only is our speaker no stranger to our shores, his speech is not entirely a stranger, at least in this school. It is one of the rare occasions when a speech was declared so perfect of its sort that the only possible response to it was to hear it again. And here's Nicholas Barker to do just that with his great lecture on the building of the Bibliotheca Lindesiana. Nicholas Barker. Once upon a time, there was a young, tongue-tied and stammering curate whose inability to preach was so great that he was sent to one of the great distinguished Victorian preachers of his day in order that he may, might study the great man at work and learn something about the art of preaching. He arrived on Friday afternoon in good time to study the process at length. Friday evening passed with nothing more than the usual hospitalities. Our curate was not unduly cast down. Saturday passed with a little pastoral visiting, followed by a brisk game of tennis. Ah, uh, perhaps he works late, thought the curate. He'll sit down after dinner and we shan't see him again. Not at all. Game of billiards was proposed. There were charades. And, ah, he must get up in the morning then, perhaps. And so the young curate got up at a very unreasonable hour, went and listened outside the great man's door, hear a light but unmistakable sound of snoring, and so crept back to bed again. And in fact, it wasn't until ten minutes before morning prayer at 11 a.m. that he even put on a surplice, still less, seemed to do anything about the sermon. And as they went out, by which time the, the young man was in a twittering state of nerves, through the vicarage gate in the direction of the church, the famous preacher lifted one of those old Jacobean chests, the lid of the chest, as you used to find in uh, halls of rectories, without stopping to talk, without indeed looking where his hand went, pulled out a little scroll tied out with pink tape, and as they walked across the churchyard to the church, glanced at it briefly, and said, Ah, Hosea! An excellent choice. <laughs> so, it's Hosea tonight. <laughs> the Lindsay family were regular and habitual travelers and sojourners in Italy, and in particular Florence. In October 1864, Alexander William, Lord Lindsay, soon to succeed his father as 25th Earl of Crawford, took his family there and settled in the Villa Caprini, just below Fiesole, their Italian home for several years. Four months later, he sat on the terrace there, writing the last few words of a long letter to his son Ludovic, then at Eton, age 17, but already showing signs that he would be a worthy successor to his father. The letter was attached to a long report reviewing the past, present, and future of what its founder liked to call the Bibliotheca Lindesiana. As he wrote, he could look back on a decade of intensive acquisition and beyond that on 30, even 40 years, he was then 52, of passionate collecting of books and works of art on lines which had become gradually more and more systematic. But as he sat there, his mind went further back. I have written you this letter, my dear Ludovic, not from Hay or Danecht, 
but from our villa at San Domenico below Etruscan Fiesole, where I hope ere many days to hail your advent from England. The sky is clear, the sun is shining, the air is delicate and perfumed with the early violet, while the scent of the Nespole, so fragrant during the winter, is loath to leave us. The birds are beginning to sing, although the snow lies still on the Vallombrosa mountains. The bells of Florence come in musical chorus across the slopes, rising and falling with the cadence of the breeze. The veil of the Arno, glittering with villas, white in the sunshine, and bounded by grey receding hills, lies before me, expanding to the eye as I gaze down the gentle valley, the veil of fair women, and clad over everlastingly in olive green, diversified with cypresses that point to the blue heavens with a finger more perennial and more eloquent than the obelisks of Thebes. Turning northwards, I see from our garden above us and below the brow of Fiesole, the long line of the terrace gardens and villa of the Medici, the work of Michelozzo, where Cosimo and Lorenzo and their less worthy successors lived and died and where the Platonic Academy held its meetings, immortalized by Landino. I little thought in my boyhood, when Cosimo and Lorenzo were the object of my worship at Eton, that I should one day dwell beside their favorite San Domenico, look up to their villa, and point to my son a parallel and a moral from their history. The parallel is this. What commerce did directly for the Medici in the 15th century Commerce has done indirectly for our own family in the 19th. In the days of Cosimo, with above 30 baronies at our back and thousands of vassals ready to ride at our command, even against the royal banners, our revenues in actual coin, even including those received from the customs of the seaports, were comparatively small and would not have availed for the collection of books or pictures even had the taste for such gear existed in those days in feudal Scotland. But now, when those 30 baronies are to ourselves as things of the past, and we have, as a Spaniard would say, but one hat to boast of, at least in Scotland, the growth of trade and commerce has by a strange recompense afforded us through the possession of coal fields in England, the means of doing that which our more powerful ancestors the contemporaries of Cosimo could not have compassed, of building up our old library after the example of the Medici and in the mode they would themselves have acted upon had they been now living. The parallel with the Medici was not a vain one. Lord Lindsay had a Renaissance vision of the familia of the Lindsays, taking in the friends of the family and those whose friendship would do them honor. It was for them that his own efforts had been expanded. I had, he, this is more of the same letter, I had in fact in my earliest youth determined to assemble together the wisest and most graceful thinkers of all countries, ages, and pursuits. As agreeable companions, instructive teachers, and honored guests, under the symbolic pavilion of the Lindsays, that the pavilion was part of their coat of arms who, with their friends, might thus converse hereafter with congenial associates in whatever branch of literature, art, or science their genius or taste should severally direct them to. In other words, I proposed to myself as an object the development of our library into one worthy of our family, not a mere bibliomaniacal congeries of undigested accumulation but a library of intrinsic excellence to contain the most useful and interesting books, old and new, in all walks of literature, though including the chief bibliographical treasures which lend grace and value to such collections. I gradually extended my view to the collection of pictures and works of art of every description, few but choice, with the object of forming and fostering useful and graceful tastes among successive generations of our family. This vision indeed went back to his earliest youth, which was spent in a slightly unexpected way. The once famous Lindsay family had sunk low by the end of the 18th century. Their main title, Alienated, the Earls of Balcarris, as they were then styled, had been too loyal to the Stuarts for their own good, 
until Alexander, the sixth Earl of Balcaris, determined to re-establish his family. His own part in this was notably achieved by his marriage to an heiress, Elizabeth Dalrymple, heiress too to the ancient Bradshaw family of Hay Hall near Wigan in Lancashire. He determined to exploit his new and sadly neglected uh, estates and sold Balcaris to his younger brother Robert, just returned from India where he had been one of the East India Company's collectors in Bengal and only too happy to return to the Scottish countryside of his childhood. Earl Alexander was not on good terms with his eldest son James, who turned out to be a mechanical and business genius with little patience for what he considered to be his father's pretensions. Consequently, when he too married an heiress, Mariah Pennington, only daughter of Lord Munkester, he went to live with his wife's parents. So it came about that their eldest son, born on the 16th of October, 1812, spent his first seven years at Munkester, high above the valley of the Esk in North Cumberland. His parents were not notably good-looking, and his famous great-aunt, Lady Anne Barnard, wrote with some surprise that instead of being plain, he's a pretty little rosy smart fellow. Active as an eel and spoilt to a certain degree, but as his temper seems good, it is not to an offensive degree. He was, she thought, a spirited boy with much activity and inquiry in him. Activity and inquiry found much to occupy them. The rambling appurtenances of an old house set in a beautiful landscape, imperial gold coins under the flagstones, armor worn at Cressy and Agincourt, secret passages in the nine-foot thicknesses of the wall, the gallery of gaunt ancestors, the surrounding burns and fells, the passage of sun and cloud were all engaging. I have scarce one attachment or pursuit, he later wrote, of which I cannot trace the germ, at least, to my residence at Munkester. There I drank in that reverence for antiquity of whatever sort, architectural, genealogical, historical, traditional. That love for learning and burning thirst of knowledge and that love and sympathy for mountains, glens, and clear streams that have afforded me so much delight through life. But with Lord Munkester's death, this paradisal existence came to an end. The family moved to Tunbridge Wells. It must have been a restricted life after the freedom of Munkester. He spent it reading and writing, writing real books, a grammar, the boy's assistant, poems, and an encyclopedia with proper title pages and the sheets sewn together became his passion, a furor scribendi, which lasted the rest of his life. The family moved again to Tittenhanger, not far away. By now, bibliophily was ingrained, for on 11th April, 1821, Alexander William, who would have been eight, rising nine, received a letter from his mother. I have no objection to your spending your shilling in the purchase of a book, it ran, but it must not be a silly one. A year later, his parents moved to Hay Hall, and he went to school at Mr. Rusden's near Dorking. Mr. Rusden was an ideal schoolmaster, and the boy was soon deep in the classics and learning by heart long passages of English poetry, Shakespeare, Spencer, Pope's Homer, the lay of the last minstrel. There were occasional excursions to London. Lady Caledon took me with her to St. James's Square and showed me the Wapiti and the reindeer they were then exhibiting at the, at the Egyptian galleries. And she took me to Drury Line Theatre where we saw Sheridan's School for Scandal and she gave me the anecdote library and the epitome of chronology. Hay was a great improvement on the south. There were fascinating building works in hand. Heraldry, the forerunner of genealogy, began to interest him. On his way back to school after the summer holidays, he spent the night at the family house, 21 Barclay Square. While I was in London, I wanted, you know, to get a printing machine, so I went to a shop and desired Robinson to ask for one. So I looked about the books and I found one very useful to me. It is the Cosmography in Four Books by Peter Halin, printed in the year 1657, a folio very thick, which I bought for 16 shillings. I shall put it in my library. 
With the press, he printed the Editio Princeps of an old manuscript poem from the library called Bellarmini Triumphus, including one copy on vellum, that it might be unique. Shades of Dr. Dibdin. But that enthusiasm soon passed. The other did not. His mother was alarmed to hear that the bookcase for his room at Hay would have to hold 200 volumes, and she cannot have been comforted by the letters she received. I have lately bought a book for one shilling. Horace's poems in duodecimo. I can't find the date and place, but the catalogue says it's Antwerp, 1552. Mr. Rusden says it is the same famous editor that printed many other works, Henry Stephanus. The outside is not very good, but the inside is excellent. In March 1825, his grandfather died, and his father became Earl of Balcarres. Alexander William thus became Lord Lindsay, the name by which he was known for most of his life. In September, he went to Eton. At first, all went well, and at the end of his first half, his tutor wrote to Lord Balcarres, I am very much pleased with your son, Lord Lindsay, in every respect. He is very studious indeed, reading something or other always, diligent, attentive, and very well behaved. I have had to find fault with him in one instance. He does not enter into the sports and games of the others much, and there is a singularity about him. But I think he will distinguish himself if he continues to do well, of which I do not doubt. He is now in the remove, having got out of the fourth form. He'll explain this to you. He's ailed nothing since he's been with me and has, I believe, been perfectly happy and comfortable. That singularity, an unconsciously accurate phrase, was, however, his undoing. It provoked such appalling bullying from his fagmaster and others that in April 1826, he wrote home begging to be taken away. Under Keat, the head, famous headmaster, Eaton was a byword for brutality. And Lord Lindsay, forward in mind, but small for his age and spectacled, was a natural target. The worst of the ensuing row was that it got out that he had sneaked, which no doubt isolated him still further from his schoolfellows. It confirmed a growing conviction that he was not a social being. But by the following September, the worst was over, and he was ensconced in a new house away from his tormentors with a tutor, Frederick Pratt. He wrote home, I've bought a new treasure for half a crown, Dionysus Halicarnassensis, with the autograph of Isaac Casorban. It was once in the British Museum, as appears from the name British Museum being written in it. We had... Duplicate sales in 1769, 1787, 1808, and 1831. They were all a mistake. <laughs> Another life-long interest can now be seen stirring. I shall have the pleasure to send you down in a few days a very curious book indeed for the library, namely a small Singalese grammar, or a first attempt at making a grammar for the language of Ceylon, which language is entirely different from any other. Meter's Greek poets, large paper, beautifully bound in Russia, ten and sixpence, the Aldine Aulus Gellius, an opium for twelve shillings and five shillings, Baskerville's Horace, a bargain at two shillings from Lord Sandwich, followed. I've lately been up into the college library and saw the Editio Princeps of Homer, printed about 1488, and a curious polyglot Bible of 1514, in six vols and a very old manuscript of Ovid, 600 years old. And, he said, there was an auction here yesterday. The chief thing was an old book called Albumazar de Magier, for which a little old man in a shabby green coat bid up to two pounds seventeen shillings and seemed overjoyed at getting it. The date was 1489. So Drury's books are selling now and they fetch a great price. I'm sorry it didn't happen in the holidays, for I wished very much to see that sale and the Duke of York's comes on very soon. And he began to frequent the London booksellers. In 29 days' time, was he crossing off the dates in the calendar? I shall be in London. I'm going to take Mr. Pratt to Payne and Fosses, not, you notice, the other way round, in Pell-Mell, the day after we get there. In 1865, writing to Ludovic, he looked back on those halcyon days for the buying of books. Dibdin's writings in particular made me for the time a thorough bibliomaniac. I met Dr. Dibdin once at a friend's house, and although he discoursed on matters very foreign to the subject of libraries, it was at the time of the Reform Bill of 1832, and he was a rabid radical. I remember the sight I had of him with pleasure. I had distant glimpses of other collectors and frequent opportunities of gazing on books of beauty. 
and value in the great rooms of Messrs. Payne and Foss in Pell Mell, a literary Rialto where the Spencers, the Hebers, and Grenvilles were wont to congregate, and where, while collating, in particular by permission of those courteous bibliopoles, the poems of Simonides, which it was my ambition to edit in the anthology of 1495, I watched them from the corner come and go like ghosts and phantoms who might have noticed me had I taken the initiative and ventured to speak to them. I also at this time in 1826 and 7 frequented the sale room at Evans, particularly when the rich libraries of Mr. Dent and the Reverend Theodore Williams were dispersed, watching the biddings and entering the prices on the margin of my catalogue. But although I occasionally bought a classic from Messrs. Payne and Foss, whose kind allowance of me was quite independent of interest, my purchases at this time were for the most part confined to the cheaper second-hand shops in Hoban. I collected in this way as many books, chiefly classical and philological, as sufficed to cover an entire wall of my room at Eton, and among them were a few volumes not unworthy to hold their place even now in our present library. Soon Eton was over with a customary douceur to Dr. Keat, receipted with a copy of the doctor's Lucretius. Ten pounds, the lowest ever given, obtains common calf binding. Fifteen pounds, you get Russia. Twenty pounds, Morocco, and so on. I have a slight cold and two or three capital prints. Dutch gamblers, Dutch boers, pictures by David Wilkie and an engraving of Mary Magdalene by Freeman after Guido. Thus abruptly, the second enthusiasm of Lord Lindsay's life obtrudes itself. In the next two years before he went up to Trinity, it was to be stimulated by more than the family pictures and prints after Guido Reni. From June 1828 to March 1829, he spent a prolonged visit to France, mainly at Paris. In September, he was off again, this time to Italy, until June 1830. At this point, his letters home changed. No longer decorous and designed to meet often a voice criticism, they run away with the writer in a kaleidoscopic jumble of new excitements. In Paris, he went to the Louvre and was completely astonished by the magnificence of the place. There are, he also wrote, many print shops and bookstalls here and there, strawberries and cherries quite plentiful. He went to the Royal Library too and got to know the principal officers. The pictures he now saw evoked a series of fascinated comparisons with those on the walls at Hay. And you must remember that with the National Gallery only just founded and prints few and erratic, the pictures at home and some of Lady Anne Barnard's were distinguished were the basis from which he was beginning to build an understanding of European art. He read the history of the Lindsays and the Penningtons in Dugdale's Monasticon in the Mazarin Library and he met and talked family history with Lady Mary Crawford heiress of the last usurping Earl of Crawford, a meeting that produced unexpected results. And he collected. Give Papa my love and tell him I yesterday picked up two valuable additions to the library. Callimachus in two vols, Octavo, 1697, and Quintus Caliber, Octavo, both of the race of variorums, of which a complete set is very rare. There are about a hundred volumes, and I've got 31 already. Mr. Pratt tried to keep him within bounds. On our first arrival in Paris, the appearance of the many stalls of old books was to him so captivating that for some time it rendered the prosecution of his more important studies rather tedious, his mind being bent upon the study of the date and merits of old editions. To this he devoted all his leisure. So I was obliged, in some degree, to limit our visits to the bookstalls, and we have now, I think, made such arrangements as occasionally afford him an opportunity of gratifying his reigning passion. The knowledge that he already possesses respecting old books and the history of printing and painting is quite extraordinary. But Lord Balcaris was alarmed, and soon after Christmas discharged a thunderbolt, the first of several over the next 40 years. <laughs> Take pictures as an example. No doubt they are most beautiful and ornamental pieces of furniture proper to adorn the dwellings of the wealthy, and being among the highest order of the mechanic art and combined with a great deal of mental association, they're consequently pleasing. But 
With regard to the nice distinction of names, it matters very little whether the picture is painted by Van der Velde or Van der Bert, the name of the painter, or to give no additional value to it. You'll find very few who understand anything about a picture. Those who pretend to be judges are often deceived. Reputed titians are the products of low copyists. And numerous pictures for which individuals have had the folly to spend half their fortunes have been the works of painters whose name has never been heard of. I therefore think that the nice and laborious inquiry about the names of painters is lost time and a pursuit not worth much investigation and altogether unprofitable. And again, I look upon the search for old books, the often obscure places at which they were published, and early printers to be even stepped lower than the names of painters, <laughs> being purely a mechanic art with which the mind has nothing to do. A volume can claim no additional value beyond its correct text, because it may be printed by Caxton or any other early printer, further than any other piece of antiquity. The best library is that which is composed of works from which the greatest possible degree of knowledge may be extracted in the least possible time. And although I would certainly appropriate part of the shelves to any old books if I had them, yet they can only be regarded in the same light as an old oak bed, the great bed of Ware, King Henry's bed at Munkester, or any other piece of antiquity. It is some time since your family produced a first-rate man, he ended, and it <laughs> is evident you must not engross your mind too much with solitary and unprofitable amusements. Lord Lindsay answered very temperately. I perfectly agree that a good picture of a minor painter is much better than one of Raphael's early works, a remark which curiously reveals the taste of the time. I don't value a picture at all because by a great name, if I find a very rare book, but for a trifle I get it, but I neither rummage after them nor do I spend all my money on them. His letters from Italy are noticeably more cautious, but his interest in Italian art grew and blossomed. And he met Lady Mary Crawford again. Lindsay was happier as an undergraduate than as a schoolboy. He worked hard and made congenial friends. He founded a Caledonian club which survived for many years after he went down. Tennyson, he notes, came to his farewell dinner. He also began to work on the task of proving the family's claim to the Crawford peerage. He kept up his acquaintance with Lady Mary Crawford over this. Lord Balcarris was discouraging. Scotland, he said, was past. All their interests were in England now. But he was beginning to realize, in the middle of his own unrelenting work to redeem and exploit the family collieries, that his son's enthusiasms were not the irresponsible and wayward passions of youth. In this, he was probably not uninfluenced by his cousin, Colonel James Lindsay, the son of his old uncle Robert, the present owner of Balcarris. Robert was an old man now, and his son abandoned active soldiering to come and manage the estates and represent Fife in Parliament. In 1822, he had married Anne, daughter of Sir Coutts Trotter, the banker and connoisseur, whose baronetcy descended to his grandson, Coutts Lindsay, the future founder of the Grosvenor Gallery. Anne and James had been distant, if congenial, acquaintances till now. He had stayed with them in London, and had once declared that he would make the colonel a determined bibliomaniac. That he never did, but he helped him build a fine library at Balcarres in later years. James was a more than competent watercolorist, too, and he and Anne shared a delight in pictures, of which they had bought a considerable number during a visit, the first of many, to Italy in 1825. In September 1831, then, Lindsay went up to stay with them at Balcarres and was wholly captivated by the place, and by them, and they by him. Away from the constraints of other society, they discovered what a fascinating, original, even commanding person he was. He, in turn, treated them, particularly Anne, as second parents who could enter into his interests in a way that his true parents, admiring and admirable and affectionate though they were, could not. It was a close alliance, early sealed, when Lord Lindsay became godfather to Anne and James's son, Robert, and sealed for good when Lindsay married his cousin Margaret, their elder daughter, in 1846. Now then, it was to James that he wrote about his discoveries of the ancient history of the family, which eventually turned into his Lives of the Lindsays, his first major book, and his desire to collect all the editions of his ancestor, the poet Sir David Lindsay. And to Anne, he wrote about the delights of studying a 10th century manuscript in the Cambridge University Library. 
In January 1833, Lord Lindsay set his examination, urged by his mother to wear flannel drawers for the occasion. As a nobleman, he had no need to take the examination and obtained his degree. By the summer, he was his own master, and then a surprising event took place which transformed his future. In November 1833, Lady Mary Crawford died and left Lord Lindsay all her personal property. This included two houses and some good pictures, including the Reynoldses of Lady Mary's sister, Lady Eglinton, and an assortment of jewellery and other effects and a large number of animals. Lord Lindsay insisted on giving four ponies to dear, dear Anne, and added, Colonel Lindsay's admiration for the bull, which is one of the most ferocious ever known, inclines me to present it to him. The money was more of a problem. He had early determined to devote it, as far as he was concerned, solely to the re-establishment of the family library. But he was anxious to share it with his brothers. His parents wisely dissuaded him, and it was the spending of this legacy, which, as he wrote to Ludovic in 1865, enabled me to make a proper commencement. Anxious to avoid bibliomania, he spent on solid worth rather than the rarities he might have bought at the Heber sale, something he later regretted. His purchases, being still, he wrote, under the influence of the bibliomania and conscious of the fact, much impressed with the ruinous effects of it, as exemplified in the case of Mr. Theodore Williams and others, I determined from a sense of self-distrust to confine myself rigidly in the first instance to the acquisition of the more useful and substantial backbone of a library, only purchasing such of the rarer books as should be absolutely essential to its completeness. The sale of Mr. Heber's collection was then going on, and a few of his books which I obtained at that time, chiefly works of history, such as Castaneda's History of the Portuguese Conquests in India, Brito's Monarchia Lusitana, Baldenzeel's Pilgrimage to P Palestine, Schiltberg's Travels in Tartary, and not a few others I have never seen in the market since. Other rare books, <clears throat> less immediately important to my scheme, I let go in pursuance of the resolution above mentioned. Many of the works that have never since presented themselves, some have occurred for the first time during the last six or seven years, and these, with few exceptions, I have secured. I believe now that for the interest of the library I was wrong, and it would have been good economy if I had spent the whole or the greater part of the sum at my command on the rarities then procurable, leaving the purchase of articles of comparatively common occurrence to futurity. There are opportunities which only occur once in a lifetime, and which, if lost, never again present themselves. On the other hand, it is possible that if I had indulged my wishes, I might have lost myself in the bibliomaniacal rut and never afterwards escaped from it. Beyond this, I'm not quite sure how Lord Lindsay spent his money. From casual references 20 and 30 years later, I know that he bought his copy of the Emperor Maximilian's Toyadank at this time laid the collection of his uh, foundation of his collection of Chinese books and bought works on the Holy Land with a particular purpose, as we'll see. But the clearest account comes in a letter to Colonel Lindsay of the 8th of May, 1834, which suggests that the exclusion of the rare in favour of the useful was not so absolute as he remembered it 30 years later. I was in the fury of research among all the bookstalls in the vicinity of Covent Garden, which I pretty well ransacked, and which I secured many delicious black letters, and the beauty of which was the subject of my voluminous disquisition. Of these, one of the most beautiful is the Latin Bible printed by Coburger at Nuremberg in 1479, a tremendous folio copy, which I was lucky enough to secure in the, uh, the choicest condition in the original binding. My object is to make our Hay Library a really useful rather than a rare and curious one. I hope someday to see the Bibliotheca Lindesiana, one of the most useful and complete collections ever brought together. I have done so much of it already, I should be sorry not to do the whole myself. Oh, it was a glorious mine of old books I sprung the other day in Lord Warder Street. It had evidently been unexplored. The man had just got in the day before a number of old books. From this I purchased above 40 volumes, which I selected out of the miscellaneous contents of the shop, diving into every corner. All were as cheap as dirt. Some were really rejoicing to an antiquary's eye. Fourteen and fifteen hundreders in capital condition. The great gun was that 1479 Bible in matchless copy. Curiously enough, a day or three afterwards, I picked up at another stall the Legenda Sanctorum, printed the same year with the Bible by the same printer, and at the same press, the three volumes matched charmingly. 
Scarcely, if at all, inferior to the, this delicious old Bible is the first edition of Sibelicus's History of Venice, a large folio printed there in 1487, which I was lucky enough to light upon for five shillings. It's a glorious copy with the initial letters painted in and small illumination on the first page of the book below which are blazoned the arms of the doge to whom the work is dedicated. All of which I hope some day or other to make myself acquainted with, for I assure you I look within as well as on the outsides. But excursions like this, I fancy, were rare. As often as possible, he remained at Hay, reading and reading. Here he was content and not content. To his friend and cousin, William Wardlaw Ramsay, he wrote... Oh, William, I wish I knew so much of every branch of knowledge that whenever I hear of any new information, I might understand it. I've accommodated myself here once more like, oh, this pen went right, split it, like a polypus to the crevices of my den, now stretching out an arm for one book, now for another. It was with William that he planned to visit Egypt and the Holy Land, another cardinal point in his life, as it turned out. They were thinking about it early in 1835 when William suggested that Lindsay should become a deputy lieutenant so that he would have an a uniform to impress the natives. Plans were interrupted when William came down from Cambridge and went off to Italy in August, leaving Lindsay behind, uh, deep in Egyptian and Hebrew history. And it was not until October 1836 that, they that he finally set sail. He read Shakespeare on the voyage and met William Ramsay at Malta and they arrived at Alexandria on November the 24th. They explored recent excavations of what was thought to be the great library, called on Mohammed Ali, and visited the pyramids with the veteran archaeologist Caviglia. He bought two illuminated Korans, although their sale to infidels was forbidden, and in the very sanctuary of Osiris, a papyrus, written, I believe, in the old hieratic character for five piastres. You must remember that this is before the great recovery of papyri at the end of the 19th century. They were rarely uncommon curiosities when he bought his. They journeyed to Upper Egypt and back, and then via Sinai and Petra to Jerusalem. After a month there, they moved on to Beirut and set out for Palmyra. On the way, William Ramsey was suddenly smitten with cholera and died within hours. Lindsay was, Lindsay was quite calm. Against all advice, he determined to bring William's body home. He had it embalmed and hired a brig for the purpose. While waiting for it to start, he visited the cedars of Lebanon and collected some seedlings and cones. He had great difficulty in getting the coffin loaded and eventually to convince the natives, the sailors, that there was no risk of infection, he, he, it was placed in his own cabin. He travelled thus all the slow way to England. Thirty-three days out, the cedar seedlings were all dead, the seeds, however, survived. He arrived at Liverpool a shadow of what he had been. There is no doubt that this adventure, quixotic yet to him necessary, had a marked effect upon him. Eden had convinced him, whatever his parents and Colonel Lindsay might say or hope to the contrary, of a singularity that cut him off from the rest of ordinary society. The voyage back from the Near East had proved to him his self-sufficiency. He is, wrote Colonel Lindsay, much more settled and decided in his opinions and has much more confidence in himself. But I fear that his distaste for general society is even increased. He has bought quantities of books since he came home. He, in turn, was delighted to see James and Anne again and was soon longing to be off with them to Italy, only waiting to see his letters from Egypt, Edom and the Holy Land the letters home that he'd written on the journey, through the press. At once a travel journal and a first exploration of the theme of the growth of Christian civilization, which was to dominate his writing. It was a considerable success and reached its fifth edition by 1852. Preoccupied with successive editions and proofs and simultaneously writing The Lives of the Lindsays, a task which had begun with his rediscovery of the family papers in the 20s, he did not get away to Italy until February, where he found Colonel Lindsay rejoicing in a volume of three or four hundred old master drawings just bought for two pounds. Those were the days. George Richmond was in Rome, and Lindsay got him to draw his little cousins. There they are, Coots drawing Robin, holding a goat, Margaret and Mary looking on in the sunny spring Campagna, as pretty a watercolour as you could imagine, well worth the hundred pounds with which Lindsay astounded Richmond. 
It was a happy summer, and the Lindsays in enforced exile from Balcaris while building work was in progress. In July, they moved to Lausanne. There, Anne and the children stopped while James and Lindsay went back to England. They broke their journey briefly at Strasbourg, and this is James writing to his wife. We took a walk over the town next day, and just as we were about getting into a carriage to go and see the arsenal previous to going to the steamboat, in passing through a passage only conceive, we beheld in an old cloister a stall of books, not less than 2,000 vols. The scent of a dozen partridges under a pointer's nose had not had an effect more sudden than these on Lindsay. He stopped dead short, arsenal, friend, Steamboat, all forgotten, three ponderous tomes were already clasped in his arms and declared to be the best edition of Aristotle by Duval. Then he sees another folio and then another. No Turk in his harem was ever in such an ecstasy. What could I do? We gave up the arsenal and Lindsay reveled to his heart's content. But all worldly pleasures come to an end and the steamboat, like time and tide, waits for no man. We were obliged to depart. And as Lindsay's principles did not admit of polygamy, he selected one. It certainly was a bouncer, two ponderous vols, and we departed with his prize. Paris with Helen was a joke to this. <laughs> None of this was so preoccupying as to exclude memories of the happy summer in Italy or the prospect of another next year. There is no doubt that it was these two visits and the winter between that saw the birth of his interest in Italian primitive painting, the vision that was to be put into words in sketches of the history of Christian art and incorporated in the system of human intellectual progress which the Bibliotheca Lindisiana was intended to chart. It was a period of vital activity, journeying, reading and writing, it was then that he too, that he did the great work of genealogical research that culminated in reclaiming in 1848 the ancient Crawford peerage. In the spring of 1846, he was released from thrall. James and Anne were busy reading and criticizing his book. At midsummer, their elder daughter, Margaret, or Min as she was known, and Lindsay suddenly came to realize that they loved each other and were married on the 23rd of July. Simultaneously, Lord Balcaris bought for Lindsay a huge estate at Echt in Aberdeenshire. Dunecht became their real home, a kind of northern extension of Balcaris, away from the duties and responsibilities of Hay. By now, Lindsay's parents were getting old. His mother died in 1850, and his father was increasingly dependent on him and Min who was inseparable from him, a constant source of advice and help and strength. With new responsibilities came new work. It was never to be so easy again for Lindsay to indulge his genius, to pursue the religious, philosophical, and aesthetic speculations which had engaged the first half of his life. Years of anxious work would be needed to meet the pressures of commerce in Lancashire, industrialized in a way beyond Lord Balcaris's dreams. Lord Balcaris himself did not die until 1869. He mellowed considerably in old age under the influence of Min, whom he adored. Only then was Lindsay able to master the family estates and concerns in such a way as to resume his writing in the last decade of his life. New responsibilities also brought new wealth. In the middle 1850s, Lindsay increased the scale of his book buying by formidable proportions. Joseph Lilly, who wrote, as regards collation, etc., your lordship excels me at my own profession. Lilly, the three bones, John James and Henry G., the Strakers, William, uh, Willis and Sutherland, Charles Molini, all found a powerful, even exhausting, if they attempted to defend a standard of rectitude, moral or procedural, lower than Lord Lindsay's. Above all, Bernard Quaritch, a humble beginner in 1847, the greatest bookseller in the world when he died in 1899, rose triumphantly to the challenge.
From 25 August 1852, when Lindsay placed his first order onwards, Quaritch, by his industry, constantly expanded learning, knowledge, daring, opportunism, and determination matched the standards set by his patron and provided the service in terms of inspection, correspondence, and examination without which the rapid expansion of, his, of the library would not have been possible. The letters that record this partnership evince equal respect and cordiality, Quaritch's as vivid as Lindsay's. Together they bought the Mazarin, or 42-line Gutenberg Bible in the Cashel sale in 1858. I have bought the Marine for 595 pounds, telegraphed Quaritch, losing all control. Or rather, perhaps it was the telegraph company that lost control <laughs> in the excitement. Following it with another triumph at the Solar sale in December 1860. And this is Quaritch to Lord Lindsay. Another Waterloo has been fought, this time without bloodshed and on French ground but I fear your lordship will say with a heavy sacrifice. I bought the vellum Catholicon for 12,450 francs, this being nearly 3,000 francs beyond your lordship's commission. Lot 784 Catholicon on vellum 1460 was put on the table. Monsieur Teschener, he was the principal Parisian bookseller at the time, Monsieur Teschner said, Dix mille francs, marchand. I stood staggered. The commissaire priseur looked at me, and so probably did the others. Teschner's bid sounded like Napoleon. Je les ai enfin, ces Anglais. Well, the 10,000 shot went into our ranks, and as I stated, the volley shook my nerves for a while until my blood came back, and I deliberately said, Cinquante. From there, the fire of bids was slowly but steadily kept up until at 12,450 francs, the lot was knocked down to me to the consternation of the immense concourse of French amateur. Beside these major triumphs, a host of other books, ancient and modern, poured into hay. The foundation of the great manuscript collection, medieval and oriental, that came to adorn what is now the John Rylands University Library of Manchester, where the papers and manuscripts are now kept, was laid at the Libri sales and others in the 1860s and 1870s. Best of all, Lindsay's eldest son, Ludovic, born in 1847, for whom the report was written, had grown to share his father's love of books. Together they divided the field, Ludovic taking the exact sciences, particularly astronomy. He became a fellow of the Royal Society, president of the Royal Astronomical Society, and his astronomic books, one of the most remarkable collections in the world, are now at the Royal Observatory at Edinburgh and his father collected everything else. <laughs> By 1872, there were over 30,000 books at Hay. Lindsay knew where they all were without a catalogue. And he was planning a great new library building added by G.E. Street, the famous Victorian architect, to the house at Dunecht in the pure highland air away from smoky Wigan. But it was never filled. Lindsay died in 1880 and the books remained at Hay. Ludovic, now the 26th Earl of Crawford, was a worthy successor. He added great incunables and manuscripts from the Sunderland, Hamilton Palace, Syston, Osterley Park sales. He collected broadsides and single-sheet ballads far ahead of his time in appreciating the importance, only now beginning to be generally realized, of such ephemera. He laid the foundations of scientific philately his collections were the basis of George V's and with his outstanding books on postal history, now at the British Library. Above all, he collected documents, books, and ephemera relating to the French Revolution, an irreplaceable historic source, now, alas, dispersed.
His scientific mind gave him a special bent for cataloguing, expressed in the eight great volumes of the catalogue of the Bibliotheca Lindesiana, published between 1910 and 1913. At its height, the library contained 6,000 manuscripts, 110,000 printed books, and over 45,000 pieces of single-sheet material. And the, these catalogues were, for many uh, years, the admiration of the nascent library profession. His standards were adopted and adapted by librarians all over the world. To do this, he engaged professional assistance, notably that of J.P. Edmund, and together they watched Mrs. Ryland's foundation at Manchester grow. And when the time came as to part with the manuscripts, when Ludovic had to secure the family settlements, it was as to a second home that they went there. By now, however, Ludovic was in ill health, only assuaged by prolonged cruises to the tropics in his great yacht Valhalla, taking with him work to be done, French documents, ballads, stamps on the voyage. He lived just long enough to see the great catalogue finished, dying in January 1913. With him, the active life of the Bibliotheca Lindesiana came to an end. The great ideal of a library that would contain the flower of all human knowledge in every language was fragmented yet augmented by Andrew Carnegie and the Public Library Consolidation Act of 1892 and the increasing burden of maintaining what progress had outmoded resulted in a series of dispersals that lasted until the Earls of Crawford left Hay Hall to Wigan, the borough of Wigan, to become a recreational centre and park, and themselves returned to Balcaris just after the World War II. Several great masses of material have stayed together at Manchester, at Edinburgh, at Birmingham, and at Cambridge University Library. But the vast mass of the library is now disseminated all over the world. The familiar armorial book plate in each book, a reminder of the place it occupied in one of the great intellectual monuments of the 19th century. Thank you. Hosea, excellent choice. <laughs> I hope you'll all join our speaker for a glass of wine, uh, etc., in the Book Arts Press, room 502 down the hall. <laughs>